This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am fired up for today, partly because I'm on fire. It is so hot outside right now. I'm not complaining. Uh, you're not complaining? Okay, I am. I just got back from Tofino, where a hot day is 17 above. So Really? Uh, oh, is yeah. That, I've, I haven't been to Tofino in years, but I'm uh, I'm a fan. It is. It was an exceptional trip, but... Uh, you got to wear a wetsuit outside. Uh, you know what? The crazy thing was, yeah, wearing a wetsuit, sitting on the beach having a sweater on three quarters of the time. And then after the first day, realizing that I was so burnt and I didn't even realize, cause it's like the sun's not hot there for some reason. Right. It, and literally, you know, in Port Alberni, we stopped for lunch. It's 31. Yeah. Yeah. Fino's like 16. I don't know how that works. Did you wear your, uh, don't hassle me. I'm local shirt. <laughs> I did. You did. I did. <laughs> you always bring that out in surf towns where you've never been. This is the other thing. I was in Sycamus briefly, three days. Mosquitoes the size of like birds. I have heard even, you know what? Maple Ridge, word on the street is you can't even fill up your car with gas. I actually last night was outside talking to my neighbor in our lane and I'm pretty sure I got some bites. Like it's, if they're in Vancouver now, this is a real problem. No, I don't think they are. I, I don't think so. No? No. I think you I was wearing a yeah. knit, knitted sweater. Maybe it was just, I don't know, a sensitive skin. This is the this is the craziest thing about the mosquitoes. I was telling you, it adds such a layer of annoyance uh to like your day to day. So we you know, we wanted to sit out and have a fire. We're burning those uh you know coils. Those green coils. Yeah. We've got like the cal- candles lit, you know, the yeah. whatever candles citronella or yeah. cit- whatever then we've got like the kid our our, our new baby right. is uh is like covered but can't defend herself so we're like swatting the whole time around her it was just horrible and it just ruined it was such a great trip otherwise but just the evenings were ruined and i was thinking how do you do this in like manitoba or the other provinces day in or day out yeah day, like how do you just operate it's just such there's an annoying two types thing. Of, there's two types of people on the prairies, people that talk the way you're talking right now and people that just won't acknowledge that it's happening. Right. Like, what do you mean? It's not that bad. And it's like, you're getting picked up and taken away. Yeah. Well, that was actually where we were staying in Sycamore. Uh, the guy who owns the house will re- remain uh, nameless. <laughs> oh, yeah. Refused to acknowledge that there were mosquitoes <laughs> the entire time. He was like, really? You're getting bit? Oh, I haven't really? had one. Yeah. And I was like, it was like, I was just one big <laughs> I mosquito like bite. You know what? And again, mosquitoes and cold when it's really, really cold and certain yeah. people just refuse to acknowledge it. Like, yeah. What are you talking about? Their ears are falling off. It's yeah. like, <laughs> it's crazy. I know. Anyways. Yeah. It, it did coping kinda... mechanisms. Right. Uh, coping right. mechanisms. Glad to, glad to be where we are here uh, uh, on Cambion 8 at the Kokomo Studios. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and uh, I know. And I, 
actually, when I got back to Vancouver, that was the, we had a fire at our place and that was the, the one thing it was like, oh God, this is so nice without mosquitoes. But, um, a test, uh, you know, this is actually a conversation about the city today with uh, Kit Sauter, who's back in Kokomo studios. He popped by, he's, he's kind of in the area. He's just over in Mount Pleasant. Um, we wanted to talk to Kit again because we had so much positive feedback from his last episode that we thought we'd bring him back. And we're actually talking about the Vancouver plan today. Yeah, I would say the the way to frame these two different conversations in my mind are, uh, the first was really about, this was before the Broadway plan got passed, was when Kit was on. Right. And of course, we you know launched with a question about the Broadway plan and it kind of weaved everywhere. Uh, and it was a super interesting conversation. And now we want to have him back to talk about the Vancouver plan. Right. Which is the obviously the citywide plan that we delve into today. And again, just like last time, we kind of weave all over the place. And um, we're almost in uncharted territory for the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, to be honest. And I don't know. Yeah. And we're not trying to eat the lunch of the Canby Report. And we've said that before. But really, we, we have, we have, we no might be in over in our being, heads. Uh, we have no interest in being a political podcast, but it does seem like right now it's just this weird moment. And uh, what we're really trying to do is capture it to, to help people better understand the city and the dynamics going on in the city, because it's a really complicated time. And a lot of the election issues are fraught with, you know, these kind of emotional issues that kind of have, have people kind of polarized in a lot of different well, ways. Polarized. And also, you know, the one thing that, struck me about this. And I, I think we brought it up to Kit at the end of the conversation and he made a good point. Some of these issues are so tough that you, you're not even sure you want to talk about them in private, let alone public. Like it's, right. it, these, these are complicated issues and I feel like there's landmines everywhere. So I'm worried I'm going to offend myself. Well, and, yeah, and this is, and so here's the thing, and we should say right off the hop, this is an emotionally and politically charged episode. This is an election year there's a lot of conversations around uptick of violence and security in the community, in downtown. There is talk about the unhoused. There's talk about the downtown east side. They're all super complicated conversations. And we try to come from a place of compassion, but we should make clear we are three middle-aged. Well, I won't speak for Kid. I think he's younger No, than I us. think he's quite a bit younger than He's us, like yeah. early 30s. But we're three men that are Caucasian males in our in our thirties and forties. There might we'll be say. some blind spots. There, <laughs> there <laughs> might be a few blind spots. There, there might be some blind spots. But we do sure. our best. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I and uh, hopefully there's some takeaways from this show. And then the only other thing I'll say is is I've heard some people say the van plan for the Vancouver plan. Oh, and this is what I was trying to express to you is that you know having now I've I've been in Vancouver for over twenty years. Safe to say, I'm a. You a, call it home. I'm a Vancouverite. I call it home. But we were talking about people who call Vancouver Van. No one who actually lives here calls it Van. That's right. what I'm gonna. That's the statement I'm gonna make. And I somebody feel said like this if to somebody me says a long to me, "How's Van?" It's it is it's always, it's always somebody, somebody from from out, somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Oh man, you moved to Van," <laughs> and nobody here calls it Van. Is that safe to say? And maybe in Red yeah. Beach, maybe it's just our circles. I don't know. At Wreck Beach? I'm just thinking of a guy smoking a joint calling it Van. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I don't think it ever <laughs> happens. I think you're right. I think that's bang on. Van is uh, is something no Vancouverite would say and uh, something that I said up until yesterday and will never say again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's uh, 
Maybe we just run with this. <laughs> Shit solder. Uh, yeah, again, complicated conversation. Really interesting. Hope uh, everyone takes something away from it. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Kit Sauter, and I'm going to try and get this all correctly. It's a mouthful. Co-chair of City of Vancouver's Rental Advisory Committee, Communications and Research at Advantage BC, Principal at Sauter Strategy, and son of Dr. William Sauter, who uh, UBC... No? No, no, not no. the last one. Okay, no affiliation. Oh, right. no affiliation. oh you're not no affiliation. Those starters. Okay. okay, so that that last one was just my uh, my guess. <laughs> yeah, but no, no connection to the wealthy family. None at all. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for coming back on the show, Kit. Uh, past guest fan favorite. I know Adam uh, listed some titles there, but maybe can you start by telling our guests a little bit about yourself if they missed the last time you were on, which was actually not that long ago, but a lot seems to have changed since then. Yeah, so I mean, to boost the pod. First off, anyone who wants to hear my like CV and long story short of my life can go back to Generational War on the Broadway <laughs> Corridor, which came out about five episodes ago. But uh, here and now, I'm a dad of a two and a half year old living in an East Van apartment close to Kingsway. And uh, I've lived in Vancouver for five, six years now. And citizen activist and volunteer, been involved in politics since I was like a 17 year old. And uh, now kind of stepped back from provincial, federal, and local partisanship right. to just uh, focus on helping to build a stronger city. Right. And everyone should listen to Generational War on the Broadway Corridor because that kind of shifted. And even, well, we should say we hopefully can capture some of this on the podcast. We just basically did a podcast before we hit record here. And it did strike me in all of the conversation we just had that it is generational more than traditional right-left, a lot of these issues. So maybe that will come out today. But but maybe we should start, Kit. A lot has changed. You just mentioned it was like five, six weeks ago uh, that you were on. You were on before the Broadway plan passed. Can we talk a little bit about what has changed in the last six weeks? I feel like, a, like interest rates are up about 3% since then as well. So yeah, what's changed since the last time you were on? Yeah, so I mean, uh, market-wise, uh, we've we've got some really high prime. I would I would provide as comment 
that we are not that far off from where we were in this same point in time in 2019, though. Right. Like that's that's a, a thing for folks to remember when we're talking about policy decisions and when um, commercial interests and investors are, are making choices. The policy framework that might be layering on additional costs or expectations are should be considered in light of the fact that we are actually barely hitting the average over the course of the last 15 years for interest rates. Right. And so we we don't want to lose our heads on the way in which we have these long-term policy and planning discussions, even though they have substantive impacts. So Broadway plan, right? We got that across the line in June. Um, Substantive amendments were put in place. Critically, uh, we had council implement a delivery timeline for September, which is really critical because this plan could have gone forward with a... It exists, but we don't know when it's going to show up, right? Uh, and so providing that degree of certainty to industry, to investors, to nonprofit actors, to be able to know the when and whether of policy implications is really important. Uh, one of the things that the Renters Advisory Committee and that I personally took on to champion and advocate for were extended um, renters protections and requirements around unit size. So when you look at building a six-plus unit multiplex of anything larger than, than six uh, units, you're looking at a requirement of 25% or more two-bedroom plus, 10% or more three-bedroom plus, and you're giving protections to renters who might be dem-evicted or rent-evicted. So this got expanded as a result of Mayor Stewart's um, amendment from having a CMHC average rent um, assess to it actually being either that average rent citywide or the existing rent at dem-eviction. Now, I think that this introduces a degree of uncertainty that's probably a problem, and we're hearing that from um, commercial builders, lenders, and uh, operators, that having that degree of uncertainty may make it so that it's not possible to move ahead with purpose-built rental projects. And like we were talking about before, maybe not even strata, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've got some substantive impacts, and I can't advocate for renters and their rights if we are not creating units for renters. This is that that is the thing, right? There's two things that that have happened on the podcast actually and two things that I hadn't really, I mean, considered but have become clear since you were on the show is is one a commercial broker on the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate podcast talked at length about how many developers were watching the Broadway plan go through and saying none of, it doesn't really matter at least in the short term because none of this pencils anyway. So it's not like we're going to build anything because it is pretty arduous uh, bar to get over. And then the second thing is Bo Jarvis, who was just on the show, the president of West Group, said what most people don't even think about is actually getting getting the financing in place when you have such arduous challenges to to actually to get the money to actually fund the project. I guess it was a net win that the Broadway plan was passed, as I understand it. But we're in a moment where, you know, we may be a long way off before anything starts to really happen. Yeah. So back in June, just about the same time as the Broadway plan was coming to debate and decision by council, we also saw um, the first six months of the purpose-built rental on arterial program um, report out. And from what I imagine are several dozen inquiries into potential development, we ended up seeing 11 projects go into the pipeline. But effectively from that point, Onward, from my understanding, 
talking with uh, commercial real estate, like there's no new projects coming forward. Staff have communicated that they don't expect any applications under that program for the foreseeable future. And so the first project that I spoke to or policy that I spoke to and advocated for, which was making it possible to build the exact same type of buildings, right? One in six, one in fives or two in fours, like I live in on Kingsway, and which was a pilot for this kind of policy is effectively dead in the water. We may get 400 units of housing over the course of the next five years, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to the 14,500 that we need every single year just to keep pace with the underhoused in the city. Do you, do you think this is, and I feel like this is one of these questions that I, we usually do at the end of the show, but maybe because we had a long conversation before we record here. We've talked about different sort of regulatory environments. Do you think we'd be better off just as little regulation as possible, build whatever you want, build it however you want, just the idea that more supply hits the market or an environment in which we're in where the Broadway plan passed, where we have different unit sizes, certain portions of buildings that are off market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, because if you can't deliver anything under those idealistic guidelines, it's a moot point. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the first principles that I come to politics and policy advocacy on is do not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Right. And I generally like to try and stay away from labels because it kind of frames people's understanding of of how things work and, and doesn't allow for a productive dialogue. But since lots of folks listening probably have a comfortable understanding of these labels, I am a liberal yimby, right? Like I, I want to build things. I am I self-identified as a radical centrist, right? Like I will take good ideas from anywhere. And like I said on the last podcast, we are living in a period of permanent crisis. So if we are not doing big things to respond to the problems, we're going to get swamped, right? And we're seeing that right now. And so to go to your point around, should we just let building happen? We kind of did that in the 2010s, right? We kind of had vision unleash the market for upper middle class housing supply, investment supply. Mm -hmm. And it did provide housing, right? It didn't provide the right kind of housing. Right. And so what we got was we got buildings uh, and units that would have been great for any of the three of us 15 years ago in our lives, but are not great for our families now. Right. And so wherever you're introducing um, regulatory arbitrage, you need to introduce flexibility, certainty, uh, timeline management and cost reduction. Right. And what we haven't seen from this council is an agreement to or support of how to get to executable timelines. Right. We haven't gotten degrees of certainty introduced on scope and size of projects. And most importantly, we haven't even seen elimination of risk, uh, political risk at the hearing process, right? Like we're going to get to a conversation about what just happened with uh, Arbutus and West 8th. But the closing remarks from the majority of council was our process is broken. This is horrible. None of us are enjoying what we're doing here and it's getting bad results. And the only people who are responsible for that are the 11 people sitting in that chamber with votes. It's not the, the fault of the public or the proponent or any of the homeless population that need this housing very badly that these decisions have become so charged and so vitriolic. It is absolutely 100% on the shoulders of council and then punting responsibility. I feel like one thing that comes out of uh, a conversation with, with you, which I think you're just saying, uh, you know, you're, you're, telling it like it is, but 
everything across the board seems to be broken. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it's broke. And we got to fix it. Like, and, th- and this is the biggest problem. We have lived in a society that has been comfortably consuming for most of the last three to five decades, right? You were always going to get a bigger TV. You were always going to get a nicer SUV. You were always going to add to your time at the timeshare, right? The amount of capital that Gen X held, millennials held, now Gen Z holds, controlling against time of life, education levels, compared to boomers, has substantively reduced every single generation since Gen X entered the workforce, right? So millennials now, I think, only have about 28% controlling for year of life and educational attainment of their parents with a comparable lifespan. And so if I've only got a quarter of the wealth that my family did at 35, what am I doing with that, right? And every time taxes go up, every time service fees get introduced, every time some crisis occurs, how am I eating into my existing savings? How am I getting stressed out, right? And this feeds into that conversation about endemic street homelessness, right? We have thousands more unhoused Canadians today in British Columbia and Metro Vancouver as a consequence of the fact that tens of thousands of Vancouverites, tens of thousands of Metro Vancouverites are like $250 a year from not being able to afford to pay their rent, right? They're one paycheck away from being street homeless, living in a car, living in a tent, moving out of the place where they have a job, have existing education. And so we're becoming increasingly fragile as a society. And we have to start making choices about how we're going to introduce resiliency again. Some of that involves market competition. Some of that involves the ability for us to be able to strive and earn and prosper as a consequence of our work, which doesn't currently happen, right? When we look at the Pierre Polyev campaign, right? And him talking about gatekeepers. The reason that it's working, the reason that it's resonating is because people feel that deep in their bones that there is something structurally wrong that they cannot get ahead. And so when we're talking about local politics and civic policy, when we talk about should we just let people build, we absolutely should. The Vancouver plan, Councillor P. Fry took uh, an omnibus motion of 13 amendments and uh, appended it to the Vancouver plan from the Renters Advisory Committee. That included 16-foot frontages on all lots for as-of-right builds for row houses and townhouses, right? Up to six stories. That included allowing as-of-right construction for any structure under six stories on a single-family lot uh, and any structure under 12 stories for supported housing. It included encouragement for policy adopting modular construction and purpose-built timber, right? And so... The advisory committee to the city is pushing really hard on fundamental restructuring of the way in which we do our land use policy, pushing really hard to make sure that we have both protections for renters and opening up the market so that that mid-sized, small-sized boutique architects, developers can actually profit and prosper from the work that they're doing and build our city again, right? So that's the, that's the fundamental catch is when we're looking at the policy decisions that are being made, are you trying to extract from the existing system and squeeze blood from the stone? Or are you trying to seed the ground and pursue what in urban planning and design uh, and urbanism is referred to as economic gardening, right? You don't get to pick where the plants grow. You pull out the weeds, right? You sow as many different seeds as you can in a vibrant and flourishing environment 
and you facilitate growth, right? And that's what a regulated and prosperous free market is. And that's what we need to get back to because right now what we have is largely structured cartels, right? There's the people who already won and keep winning. And anyone who tries to enter can only do it by either cheating or being given an edge by someone they know. So for this... Um you know, monoculture uh, to be challenged and have sort of this this flourishing garden that you talk about. Can we step back and talk about the Vancouver plan? Because I think it's for people, you know, we heard about the Vancouver plan first with Gil Kelly, who's no longer with the city, was on talking about the one big plan. It came to council, as I understand, about on the 22nd of, of July for the, where there's been already some amendments. Can we talk about this plan whether you think it's a good or bad idea and where you see it going. Yeah, so I uh, I wrote an op-ed for Daily Hive two weeks ago talking about how Vancouver badly needs a more ambitious plan for its future, right? And so if folks want to check that out, um, they can search Daily Hive and Kit Sutter and, and they'll find it. The thesis behind that is the Vancouver plan doesn't go far enough. And I do want to say, like, I, I want to applaud the vision that Gil Kelly had, the continued work that Teresa O'Donnell has had. And Teresa's only been conning the ship for less than half a year, right? right? And she came in having already been a part of staff, having already been a part of the Vancouver planning process, equipped and prepared to address a fractured council and walk them through the how, why, and what for of a 30-year official community plan for the city. Vancouver is the only city in British Columbia without an official community plan. We've existed for 136 years. We have tried to implement some version of official community plans at least three times in the last 50 years. And they've all failed. Mm -hmm. They have all failed because every single time the impetus from City Hall is answered to the most powerful people in the city, which is hold up, slow down. Talk to me. I want to have a veto over growth in my neighborhood, right? And some folks want to reduce that to NIMBYism. But since the 1970s, we've had a exclusionary zoning practice that makes it so that there's a monoculture of this is where 1920s craftsmen are built. And this is where 1910s Edwardian mansions are built. And this, right? And so if you get people generationally used to monoculture neighborhoods, they're going to have a negative response to shaking that up and introducing it, even though so many of the people in Vancouver who travel abroad and overseas go to places and see a city where you can walk down the street, you can go into a friend's apartment, there's like a DJ dance bar in the second floor studio, and there's a bistro on the ground floor, and there's a garden patio on the roof, and four floors in between are just residential apartments, right? And People say they want that. People say they, they'd love to see it introduced. But every time we have that conversation in the city, the answer is no. The answer is, what about yards? What about side yards? What about swing sets for kids to play, right? And those are valid questions, but there hasn't been the political courage to, to move on this. And we haven't seen that political courage in regards to the Vancouver plan this time around. The first item struck by this council on voting to move this thing forward was the implementation. Subsection A, implementation of the plan, strike it, right? We'll say that we have a Vancouver plan. We'll go and we'll have the election pretending that we took four and a half years to plan this thing and then executed on it. But it'll be the next mayor and council. It'll be the next slew of staff 
that actually have to do the implementation plan, which could take anywhere from a year to two and a half years. And, ju- and just for listeners, when we say an impl- implementation plan, like what what is actually the difference? If they if they can celebrate an accomplishment without any sort of implementation, like what does implementation actually entail? Yeah, so um, city staff are better equipped to answer this question than I am. <laughs> but from listening to the presentation of council, from, from having uh, briefings to the, the Renters Advisory Committee, what has to happen from this is this is a high-level strategy document, right? And after getting it passed, it sets the standards. That's why it was so important to me to get success on the Broadway plan because it acts as a keystone for what the expectations for planning and implementation look like for another dozen local area plans, right? And so the delivery plan will hopefully be concluded inside of a year, but I'm not putting money on that. I'd I'd be more than willing to bet that it could go to two and a half years, right? Because if we end up with the same council as we have right now, they're going to want to stick their fingers in it and slow things down and add pet projects and, and mandates. And so once that delivery plan goes into place, that goes to, okay, now we're going to launch our local area plan consultations. So if we take the Broadway plan as a template, which is the largest implementation, scare quotes, that we've seen for a local area plan, 8.9 square kilometers, 84,000 residents, 72,000 jobs, there's only really, in my view, two ways that we can cut that, which is you either build similar area plans based on population or you build similar area plans based on geographic scope, right? And so if we do it based on population, then we probably see smaller number of larger local area plans in the rest of the city because the Broadway corridor is the second densest area in the city. And so we see like one to three west side, three to five east side, right? If we go with geographic scope, well, Vancouver is 115 square kilometers. You can do the math on what a nine square kilometer or 10 square kilometer project looks like. And we see a half dozen on the west side and we see eight on the east side, right? And to my knowledge, City of Vancouver has never done more than two or three local area planning initiatives at the same time, which means that if we've got anywhere between eight and 16, we're looking at another dozen, 14 years before we actually get the Vancouver plan, which is supposed to chart our course to 2050. So we'll be done in 2036 and have less than 15 years to actually roll it out. And hopefully we have low interest rates at that point. Right. (laughs) So just one more question about the Vancouver plan here. Uh, a lot of people are probably thinking, you know, this overarching plan, and yet you're talking a lot about local community plans that sound a lot like official community plans that we've been doing for a long time, the West End plan, the Grandview Woodlands plan. What's the point of one big plan? If, if it's just, if we're actually a city of neighborhoods that are unique and precious and diverse? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question, and it's a question that should be getting answered in this election, right? Because we are only a city of 115 square kilometers. When we compare ourselves to Toronto or Winnipeg or Calgary or Montreal, we are geographically tiny in comparison and punch way above our weight on every major social, cultural, economic item that you could consider. So the argument for, in the case of team, right, Councillor Hardwick, saying there's 50 distinct neighborhoods in the city, City Hall saying there's 24 Right. You can atomize and compartmentalize down to the individual block on stuff like this. Sure. But I don't think you should. And I would like to see a candidate for mayor and a party that has a good chance of forming a majority on council making the same argument. We're one city. We have a cohesive geography and history. 
we have shared common interests and shared values. And that plan should align with those in the medium and the long term. And the plan tries to do that. So one of the, one of the core reasons, the core bureaucratic and policy reason for doing this is when we talk about political and policy uncertainty for planning and development, staff have to refer to literally like four and a half feet of stacked documents, right? Like it is a wall of policy that overlap, contradict, no one can remember, right? If you have one official community plan, all those documents have to be cross-referenced. All of them have to be integrated. All of them have to be stricken and eliminated when they contradict with each other. And so you don't have a greenest city, a blue and green waterway initiative, right? Competing with each other on which policy is more important. You don't have shadow and shading versus heritage versus community identity and neighborhood character. You have all of them brought together. And so someone has to go through and cull that work instead of what's happened, particularly since uh, the 1980s, which is instead of doing the hard work to reform, renew, address existing policy problems, we're just going to paint over that. We're going to stack another 16 pages of policy on top of that and hope nobody notices that they contradict the policies we wrote six years ago, right? So that's a big driver for this. What isn't being delivered is execution, right? I championed making sure that we include as a high-level requirement consideration and implementation of active transportation corridors, right? Protected bike lanes on every arterial, every greenway. I championed uh, us working with Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, working government to government, and figuring out a path forward in which we have shared stewardship of public space, right? I would like to see the city of Vancouver move to a place that by 2050, we are championing a policy that should be adopted across the developed world and around the world, which I refer to as 50% for the future and half for humanity. We should have half of all air, water, and land protected because we are running out of ecological diversity. We are running out of um, clean air and water. We are running out of the ecological and environmental sinks that protect us from extreme climate events. And so the only way we can get to that, the place where we are buffered is by introducing ecological density that acts as a net to protect us. So those are some of the big things. And when we go back to market, that plan needs to get to a place where we have as of right construction, right? People who work hard to purchase their own land should be able to build a multiplex instead of a mansion if they so choose, right? It is easier to build a mansion than a multiplex everywhere in the city. And as we see continued immigration, as we see changing economic realities, as we see extended life, which is a huge success that we should be celebrating, right? I talked to you guys about this the last time I saw you. My in-laws are immigrants. They moved here as economic migrants in the 1990s in their 30s. They still do not speak perfect English, right? And there are no care homes that speak their language. And I have to plan for multi-generational living so that if and when they need long-term care and support, I can have them in a shared living space, in a shared home. But I'm never going to be able to afford a house on the west side. So what I need is I need a townhouse. I need a courtyard complex of four to six units. I need something that allows for that flexibility of both my kids and my in-laws living on the same plot of land so that we can live like most families in most continents in most of human history have lived since the city was created, which is on the same place for generations, all sharing wealth and resources so that you can make a better future for your kids. 
We had some big news about uh, West 8th and Arbutus uh, last night. And just to timestamp it here, we're uh, July 27th. July 27th. Yeah. So, so um, first of all, can you unpack what happened uh, with, with West, West 8th and Arbutus and uh, what the decision was last night? Yeah. So after seven days of hearings, more than 40 hours of uh, public feedback, debate, and amendment, Council voted eight to three in support of a BC housing proposed and supported housing project. It's 13 stories, 129 units of split supported housing. So half of those units are for folks or planned for folks who are street homeless and half of those and and, um, drug dependent. And half of those are for folks who are currently supported or in supported housing who might need to transfer to a new location. It's mixed gender, it's mixed age, um, and it is a mix of folks between those who have mental health and drug dependency, uh, folks that in in the sector would be referred to as hard to house, and folks who simply need additional supports in the community. The context is the folks in that neighborhood are not happy. Uh, not all of them, but a loud and vocal minority are very much opposed to the project going in the scope and scale that it is. Um, and there's been a, a, a very tough public contest over whether or not this is a good idea, a good use of resources, a good place, a good scope and scale. Um, so we had 293 registered speakers to the project. I think there were another 18. So we got over 300 people speaking to this. And um, that's one of the largest public hearings in the history of the city in a council term that has had dozens and dozens of public hearings. Justin McElroy just reported today, we had more than 90 public hearings go over four hours in this council term, <clears throat> which is more than all the other cities in the metro region combined in the last four years of local government. So it's historic and it's dysfunctional and it's not working for anybody. And it passed. It passed, yeah. So as a, I guess, a couple questions. One is... Um, you know, clearly this is uh this this feels like a, a lightning rod um in terms of of a city that's greatly divided over a, a million different issues. Why do you think it passed? For one, it passed because it was the right thing to do. Right? The the at the end of the day, we have more street homeless in Vancouver and in British Columbia today than we ever have in absolute and relative numbers, right? We have as of the March homeless count, more than 8,600 homeless, unhoused British Columbians. That same count in March had 3,665 unhoused Metro Vancouverites, right? And for critical context, this Monday, everyone in the region got woken up with an emergency alert, cell broadcast, saying that there was a active shooter event in Langley. The details have yet to be fully released. The shooter uh, died as a consequence of police action against them. But the best we're able to tell right now is that a young man went and drank at a casino in Langley. And then he got in his car and he drove around the city for more than six and a half hours hunting and shooting for unhoused Langley citizens. Two of them are dead. One of them's in intensive care. One is in emergent care still. And so that's the social 
context of what's going on with street homelessness, with drug use and mental health issues. And it's happening during the same week that we have the Pope touring Canada, providing apologies to folks um, as a consequence of the act of genocide perpetrated by the residential schools program that was maintained for more than 100 years in this country. And so, like, this specific project as a lightning rod is a lightning rod as a result of decades, and in some cases, centuries, of deep policy decision-making. We are a wealthy enough society to be able to end street homelessness. We functionally didn't have street homelessness in most of North America between the 1950s and the 1970s until exclusionary zoning got to a place where we started ending um, room shares, where we started ending long-term rentals in hotels, where we started ending the ability to do multiplex and and rooming houses in what are now elite single-family neighborhoods, right? And so we removed existing policy options, and we've seen the compounding net impacts over the course of 50 years since the 1970s, resulting in higher rates of drug use, street homelessness, mental health issues. Uh, And so this one project is 129 units. It is on city land. It is at the end of the Broadway corridor subway station. It is walking distance from the VGH health campus. Right. So if you have people who have mental health issues, who have uh, extended care needs and drug addiction, why wouldn't you want them walking distance from the best research hospital in Western Canada? Right. And so it's an objective good to get these people housed, but it is a very fraught political and policy trade off to ask this neighborhood to accept new neighbors who they have fears will be bad neighbors. And so We've got to work through why we got to that point and whether those fears are founded or not. The thing I'd say on that is one of the reasons that council probably voted in favor of this is just last month, they voted for a nearly identical project in my neighborhood on the east side. They voted for King Ed and Knight to have 109 units of supported housing, half drug users, half non drug users, in partnership with an indigenous nonprofit housing um, supporter, and they voted unanimously in favor of it. And so while I am not in favor of us saying everyone needs to share the burden and what's fair for the east side needs to be fair for the west side, I think that gets into like punitive and retaliatory politics and is unhealthy uh, for a civil discussion. Council supported this. There were only 26 speakers I was going to ask, yeah, how many how many speakers showed up? 26 speakers, half and half, right? Saying, yes, I support this. No, I don't, right? It's, a, it's on the same block, kitty corner to the Save on Foods, uh, a park where a bunch of kids and families play, a daycare, my bank, the library, right? So it's almost identical context to what is happening um, on West 8th and Arbutus. And It didn't have the same degree of opposition. And we know that vastly more supportive housing units have been approved and built and maintained on the east side of the city over the last 15 years than on the west side. And so at a certain point, you end up running out of land, right? And the city owns this land. It's a brown field site. It's a good place. And it has extended supports from BC Housing, who more than anyone should know what they're doing and how they're they're executing. Hey, everyone. 
Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. So, so I think somebody out there listening is thinking about this specific project, the one at Ethan Arbutus. It's really big, right? Scale. The unit type is, is wrong. Um, it's primarily bachelor units. Uh, there's a lot of them. It's very high. It's right across the street from a school and it potentially doesn't have the supports required, particularly scale-wise and unit type-wise. Everyone's heard somebody say, well, you know, a single mother with two kids, sure, that's great. Well, that's, we're welcoming people like that. It's just the, the bachelor suites stacked on top of each other right next to a school with half the, the people living there with drug issues is potentially a scary, a scary thing. And, and, and it's not unreasonable, right? I feel like one of the things that the, the context of that you provided is, is, and maybe this is just media, but you know, we're having, you know, the 29 year old guy that was attacked downtown and stabbed in uh, a week or two ago. There's, there seems like there's either an uptick or an uptick in reporting of random violence in the city. It does feel like we're kind of unhinged a little bit. So, so I'm just, I, that, that's the other context that I'm just curious to hear your take. And thanks for saying somebody out there is thinking about that. <laughs> Not Matt specifically. No, it wasn't me. No, but I mean, like, there, there's a lot it's of people an interesting that, framing. There, there's a lot of people that lined up to speak against well, this exactly. project, right? I'm just, I'm parroting what, what the, the other side. Yeah, 100%. And we were talking about this offline, but uh, there's a reason I'm not running for public office. And it's so that I can say 
shit like this and piss people <laughs> off and get them thinking about how to fix problems. Right. So first of all, I'm actually going to personalize this. And it's part of what I address counsel with. I grew up in the suburbs in White Rock, right? My mom's a stockbroker. Dad's a pharmacist. They got divorced when I was a kid. They both got remarried. My former stepfather was an abusive alcoholic. And he wasn't always bad. Uh, I, I loved him. He got really bad when I was a teenager, right? I grew up in a town full of doctors and lawyers and engineers, people exactly like the people who live in kits. And I lived in a house with a man with substance abuse, emotional and physical abuse problems. And he threatened the safety of my mother and he threatened the safety of our family. And when I was 17 years old, starter on the rugby team, leading the school play, president of the student council, his dad died and he went off the rocker. And three months before I graduated high school, my mom asked me to leave my house because she was afraid that he was going to get violent with me. So I was homeless three months before graduating high school. And I slept in the student council office. I'd sneak in at night and sleep there for a couple of weeks until the janitor found out that I was there. And he was like, if I keep letting you do this, I'm losing my job. Ended up bunking at a friend's place because parents let me stay there. And eventually reconciled with my dad, who I had been estranged from, and he let me move in. And, but I was, I was near homeless for the last semester of my senior year in high school. And if I didn't have a network of support, if I didn't live in an upper middle class household and suburb, I could have been street homeless. I could have not gotten my graduation. I could have not gone to UBC. I could have not progressed down the path of life that I have today where I'm a small business owner, a father, and an active civic volunteer here in the city of Vancouver, and I think contributing to our society. So when we talk about street homelessness, we have to personalize the reality, right? Counselor Weeb talked about in his closing statements, his stepbrother having issues with being housed, right? So when we look at what needs to do, we have to remember that we are not talking about a transient population of strangers coming and invading our streets. We're talking about our own children. We're talking about our own siblings. And that needs to be at the heart of our conversations, as hard as it is to put ourselves in positions where we see ourselves or people we love as vulnerable. So that needs to be the context of the framing of our decision-making. And it's part of what drives the compassion behind allowing this to occur. Now, why does it have to be so big? So first off, I reject the claim, right? Same discussion that we had during the Broadway plan. 13 stories, it's just taller than a mid-rise, right? Just. And in the context of the Vancouver plan, permitted as of right. So if this project was coming forward in November, we wouldn't even need to do the public hearing for it because it would be allowed. But because the site is zoned for below six stories, We've had this whole rigmarole over the course of a year fighting over the realities of it. Second of all, and I've said a bunch of things on here, there's less leftists that probably listen to this pod, um, <laughs> about free markets and enterprise and people working to be able to build prosperity in their communities. Uh, so I'll say something that probably will piss off folks who identify as taxpayers. We got to raise the rates, right? The rental and shelter rates uh, for folks are $375. 
And so the answer to why does the building have to be so big is even BC housing on public land with tax exemptions supported by tax dollars as an existing crown has difficulty penciling out a project. And so they came forward with something larger than what was allowed because the need is so great, right? When we look at that 3,665 counted unhoused Metro Vancouverites, 129 units gets us past 3.5% of those people housed. That's a big deal, right? So we have that one. We have the one on King Ed and Knight. So now we're looking at more than 6, 6.5% of the entire population of unhoused Metro Vancouverites getting houses, right? If we're looking at just specifically Vancouver, we are looking at more than 10% of our unhoused population being able to get houses. And the reality is that less than half of all street homeless are drug dependent. Many of them have varied mental health issues. But you would too if you were living on the street. You would too if you were constantly being displaced from the place you were camping or sheltering, if you were under the threat of other people who are also unhoused, if you were losing your property in the face of street sweeps, right? This week on Hastings, we saw Vancouver Fire and Rescue displace dozens of people who were camping in shelters in a tent encampment on a sidewalk built up against buildings. The reason we have zoning and fire regulations is because the three ancient plagues of cities were plague, pestilence, and fire. Modern zoning got one thing right, which is you shouldn't allow slums, tenements, and tent encampments. I worked for Emergency Management BC. I worked alongside the provincial fire marshal, and we dealt with kind of the first major homeless camp back in 2012 through 2015, Beacon Hill Park in Victoria. And the reason for intervention is because you create a circumstance in which people are endangered by a tiny minority of criminal actors. We saw that in Oppenheimer, we saw that in Crab Park, people getting threatened and stabbed, uh, and fire, right? So whether you're cooling or heating, or if you're in a hot environment and you have any form of heat at all, the risk of fire breaking out and people's lives being in danger. But where activists and members of the unhoused community are absolutely right to criticize government, if you don't have the units to move people in and you displace them, and you do a street sweep and remove their only worldly property. They don't have a tent. They don't have a sleeping bag. They don't have anywhere to go. You're not the good guys, right? Well, what, do you, what do you say to the, to the business owners, the people that own condos along Hastings? I'm thinking about Sequel 138 as a building. The company, the, what is it, Lightform, the coffee shops, the variety of actors in the area that exist that now can't access their buildings, that now can't have broken windows, have a lot of damage, drugs played all over the ground, um, and, and maybe their livelihood tied up in either the business venture or a property that they, they had bought in the area, or just the ability to, to live in the community. Because realistically, I live not far from the downtown east side. You can't even walk Hastings anymore. And it stretches right to Dunleavy. Yep, 100%. And I am not one of the folks who wants to villainize small business owners or people who live in condos there, call them gentrifiers, right? Like the, the reality is that a vibrant urban landscape, which we do not have, is one in which you have 
stable, gentle, and organic change in communities over time. And so you're going to have areas where the city kind of shifts, right? If you look at Vancouver's history prior to the 1970s, you actually saw east-west changes in where the nicest neighborhood in the city was, right? Mount Pleasant, 100 years ago, was Shaughnessy. Shaughnessy was the downtown east side, right? And now Shaughnessy's a frozen in amber mansion district that no one can recognize as having been a workers' housing area uh, 100 years ago. The folks who are being impacted in those neighborhoods, one of the questions that I hear from housing activists, from homelessness uh, and, and drug use advocates, is are you being harmed or are you being made uncomfortable? And so for the folks who are unhoused, they are unequivocally being harmed, right? There is a risk of harm to the rest of us, right? Those business owners, those property owners, people who live in and near those neighborhoods. I have been uncomfortable through the course of most of the pandemic riding the 19 through the downtown east side. I had to personally confront more than a half dozen probably mentally ill middle-aged, white, possibly unhoused people who basically had racist outbursts against either very old or very young Asian Canadian women. Bus driver didn't intervene. There was no transit cop. So a big square white guy in a blue suit stood up and said, you can't talk like that and you got to get off this bus, right? We shouldn't have to have citizen intervention in the conduct of behavior. We shouldn't be having our policy and structures failing us in this manner. And to the root of your question, what about those folks in and around the downtown east side who are starting to be impacted when they are already much better off than their unhoused neighbors? We have to end the policy that kettles people in the downtown east side. We have to end the policy that concentrates poverty and despair. And so that's the trade-off that we have to make is how do we build the supports across the entire city for gentler density, less intensity, with those supports in place, with the capacity for people to stay in neighborhoods, right? When they're in a precarious situation, if they end up having a mental health episode or drug dependency episode, if they live in the West Side, right now there aren't enough supports in place to guarantee they aren't going to end up in the downtown East Side. Right, right. Well, this was the, or I was just going to say the, the modular housing at Jericho, right? Like was the, well, this is it. And to just to kind of, to, to flesh this out a bit, there seems to be a concentration, I think is, an, is another concern around this type of housing. And, and the concern then becomes, you know, what about the communities where we're doubling down? And what about the legacy in those communities? Because when we had Ken Sims on the program, he was talking about Chinatown as an example. Can you, can you talk to that a bit? Like, is part of the idea of, because it seems to me there is a debate here of, of concentrating this type of housing versus peppering this type of housing throughout, call it, you know, the, the east side and the west side, less so on the west side. Yeah. So uh, full disclosure, I was Ken's campaign manager and chief strategist for almost two years. He and I parted ways in January of this year um, over kind of differences of opinion of, of how and, and what to do in executing the campaign for, for his run for mayor. But no hard feelings. And I like Ken a lot. I wish him luck. Uh, I also 
proudly served um, Naomi Yamamoto, who was the Minister of State for Emergency Preparedness and Response and the first Japanese Canadian elected to the BC legislature. First Japanese Canadian appointed as a crown minister. And the legacy of both the Chinese Canadian community and the Japanese Canadian community, right, with head tax and then the internment is one that needs to be dealt with in the context of the decisions that we're making in our land use today. Because the largely South Chinese immigrant population who built one of the most vibrant Chinatowns in the world, right, is that they eventually, as a consequence of policy and zoning decisions, of supports for the expansion of the downtown east side, the concentration and kettling of poverty and despair right beside Chinatown, ended up moving away. So you end up having an older population, a less economically flexible population. You have a lot of supported housing units for Chinese seniors in Chinatown who don't speak English as their first or primary language, who don't feel connected to the broader decision-making scope of the city, who have to have uh, second and third generation family members act as go-betweens for major institutions, whether that's just going to the bank or dealing with City Hall. You see with the legacy of Little Tokyo, right, right next door, we have talked about publicly as a society the deaths of World War II veterans and how we no longer have that legacy of folks from World War II. Ministry Yamamoto's parents were both interned. They met in internment camps in the Kootenays. And the Japanese-Canadian population, for those of you who don't know, had all of their properties seized. They had their shipping boats handed out. They had their shops and houses sold off, basically in lotteries to non-Japanese Canadians, predominantly white. And then they were interred more than 200 kilometers from the coast, which is why most Japanese Canadian families didn't come back to Richmond and Vancouver, where they had lived for decades, generations. They moved to Toronto because even after the end of internment, they were barred from being on the coast. And so that legacy and the time that's passed, the 70 years that have passed, means that now we're in a place where there is a lack of community and social cohesion. There's a lack of champions and folks withstanding who have kept the stories of those places alive. And so if you're a policymaker at City Hall, whether you're a counselor or someone in the planning department, if you're a proponent for supportive housing, nonprofit or BC housing, right? You're looking at these spots where there isn't a chance of high opposition to construction. You're looking at a, a place where you have a consequence of already concentrating that poverty and you have lower land values as a consequence of that. And so if you're just looking at it, at it as a policymaker and you're like, we got to build housing for people who need it to get them off the streets, you're going to put that in, in the places where no one's going to stand up 293 times to say they hate your project because less people are aware, less people are engaged. There's less of a legacy of continuous activism and involvement in the community. Hence the uneven divide of the east side and the west side. That's right. So, so in, in your mind, then, this, the, the concentration that has occurred entirely due to policy over the last 30, 40, 50 years is obviously a challenge. And the Arbutus and Eighth is a first step, would you say, to kind of 
democratizing. I don't know what the, the yeah, word would no, be. That's, that's absolutely right. And and when we talk, like when we talk about our previous podcast, Generational War on the Broad, Broadway Corridor, democratizing is the word, right? One of the big things that's undermining public faith in our societies in the West in general is a lack of robust democracy in all things. Democracy in our government, democracy in our arts and culture and society, and democracy in our markets, right? Democracy just means rule by the people for the people, right? And we don't have systems that do that today. We have systems that have gotten farther and farther away from a democratic ethos. And so democratizing is the perfect word, right? We need to have a city where folks don't notice sheltered housing. Folks engage positively with unhoused or supported housed citizens as fellow citizens, right? We want to get to a place where there isn't a stigma associated with that one project, right? And so it'll be years before we see West 8th and Arbutus built. There is time to get this right, right? Opponents of this project saying, we don't know what the supports are. We don't know whether there's going to be a good neighbor agreement. We don't know if there's a community governance council, right? Marguerite LaForge down in Olympic Village had those same concerns, right? Upper middle class, folks our age, right? Moving in post-Olympics into condos. They're promised a school. Still don't have it. Mm -hmm. They've got a pretty good community center, which is nice. Uh, but then they ended up having extensive supportive housing put down there. And unlike folks in Kits, unlike folks in my neighborhood in Kensington, they were close enough to have very good concerns that this would bring some of the worst elements of the downtown east side because it's just on the other side of False Creek. Well, what ended up happening was they implemented a community management committee and it disbanded in less than five years because none of the issues that they foresaw even occurred, right? They disposed of the reason for shared oversight from the community because they became part of the fabric of that community inside of less than half a decade. And that's with a population of people who are not permanently housed if the programs are successful, right? They're going to be living there for maybe one to three years, hopefully. And then they are themselves being able to find new housing arrangements, better social and economic circumstances for themselves and moving potentially into housing in that same neighborhood or out of it, right? into something that aligns with their goals and ambitions, right? And that's what we should be fighting for. We should be fighting for a city where anyone can live anywhere and everyone can achieve their hopes and dreams if they, they put the work in, right? But we, we shouldn't be effectively caging people in certain geographies and making it so that, like, if you're born in Dunbar, you're going to live in Dunbar. If you're born in Strathcona, you're going to live in Strathcona. If you're born to someone living in the downtown east side, you're never going to escape. We shouldn't have places where people want to escape in the first place. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be at least a narrative, and we'll move past this maybe after after this question, but there seems to be a narrative at least on social media and in a lot of the popular Vancouver publications that are kind of more of the maybe clickbait articles that I guess the unhoused population and the safety of Vancouver are intimately connected. Is that is that a fair, at least that that, that spin exists? Oh, the spin certainly exists. I think that something to remember is, one, the actual data does not bear out that increased attacks are occurring, right? We do not have any evidence 
that acts of violent crime are up on the in rise. Aggregate. Okay. They are roughly average across the last decade. So is reporting up on on violent crimes or stranger attacks? Because it, it seems like that it's it's you you can't escape it. So reporting is always up in an election year on violent crimes, first of all. Second of all, there are deep sociological drivers for people living through a plague. And whether people are happy to hear this or not, again, I'm going to say something that no one's going to be happy about. We're living through two plagues right now, right? Monkeypox has entered San Francisco and New York's water supply. It's a pox. And the fact of the matter is, once it's in the water supply, rats live in sewers. Once rats get the pox, the pox is going to be endemic within major cities. So for every parent who's listening, make sure your kid is washing their hands and make sure that you're checking them for uh, symptoms that look like chicken pox because it's a risk. It's going to be a slow burn. It's not going to be like COVID. It's going to be something we have to deal with for a long time. And once that happens and we have endemic risk within the population of monkeypox, we are going to be dealing with it for a long time, which means we have to do smallpox vaccines again. And everyone has to get it. So unless you're over 55, you have no smallpox immunity. And pox are gross. They're weeping sores. So let's just put that to the side. <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing this for the first time right now. <laughs> right? It's funny how I don't read any articles that say anything about monkeypox. So I right. just don't want to know. I yeah, still thought it terrible. was only Montreal. <laughs> yeah. So... When you have multiple plagues, people are either going to shut down and not want to engage with it at all, but they're also going to be primed to assess other risks at a higher level, right? And so I am not negating the number of folks I know personally who like, I know folks who live down in Chinatown who take an Uber four blocks to get to their tech job. They're all women in their 20s and 30s. They do not feel safe going on the streets, right? And I wouldn't take my wife and daughter on the 19 through the downtown east side for most of the last three years because there were too many instances of physical, racial, sexual threat that I witnessed. So those concerns are real. The broader systemic thing that we should also be having a public policy conversation about is every time we have a spike in... Um, chaotic street attacks, right? Things like that. It drives people to want to move to the suburbs, right? My family, your families probably have had conversations about like, can we raise kids here? Is it safe, right? Will this continue or get worse? I don't want to move to Maple Ridge. I don't want my wife to have to drive an extra 40 kilometers a day on the highway, right? So this, again, super complex systemic problem has huge negative knock-on impacts for the economy. And so we have to grapple with this and we cannot dismiss the mental health, the unhoused issues. We cannot dismiss the criminality. Simple fact of the matter is a couple dozen people are responsible for almost all the random street attacks and property crimes in Vancouver. A couple dozen people. Now, that is not a civic government issue. That is a enforcement and Canadian Criminal Code and Provincial Judiciary and Policing Act concern, right? We have to move with compassion and grace towards some form of supported institutionalization. We eliminated institutionalization wholesale in the 1990s, and that's what created our endemic street homelessness problem today, right? We literally let people out of Riverview, 
and put them on a Greyhound and dump them off in the downtown east side. And we're like, figure it out. And from that moment on, we have had substantive issues with drug use and, and unhoused street populations. So we're seeing the work slowly being done. And it's being done in a manner that mitigates potential harms because those systems get abused, right? You, you do not want to have a reoccurrence of people being permanently institutionalized and, to be crass, thrown in a loony bin sure. where they have no means of appeal, right? Because when you get labeled with that, you can't go back like you would with a release tribunal for assault, because it's just the nurses and doctors in the asylum determining whether or not you're of sound mind. And if they don't like you, maybe you're not, right? And so there's a lot of civil rights considerations that need to be balanced on this. But we know for sure that a tiny minority of people are driving fires, random attacks, property assaults, or, or damage in graffiti, right? So how do we scale and manage those issues? How do we use alternative justice methodologies, right? You have to have a healthy community to be able to pursue non-retributive justice, right? Instead of just incarcerating someone, having them sit down with the business community and talking about like, can we get you a job? Like, how can we make you feel value in the space? Um, and then in those worst circumstances, I'm comfortable saying some people need to be locked up, right? Like there, there are some people who are living the life that they are as a consequence of decades-long policy results, right? If you have someone with mental health issues who had a fraught and traumatic childhood who has fetal alcohol syndrome, right? How much room is there for that specific case to be functionally rehabilitated as a contributing member of society? And if they're continuously violent, they shouldn't bear the full burden of that failure, right? We should all societally say we let this person down but if they keep running around attacking people sometimes you have to take them off the streets for their own good and the, the safety of others right and so that's a really tough conversation to have uh and it is fraught with abuse by decision makers and we have to continue to work through it well, well maybe we'll leave it there then kit thanks always for uh, a very compelling conversation. And uh, these are obviously really challenging issues to even just talk about and never mind uh, try and solve it in, in an hour and 15 minutes, which I don't think any of us are really trying to do, but it's uh, <laughs> that was the goal of the talk, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But can, we do have this segment called the five wire, five quick questions, uh, lighthearted questions to end the show. Can you stick around for that? I absolutely can. Yeah. The five wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay, excellent. Okay, so question number one, we we had you on recently. So this is uh, going to be we an did old, some school. old school five wire questions. Yeah. So first question is, what is your favorite area in Vancouver? So my specific favorite spot is my commute into downtown, which folks who are opponents of the viaduct are going to hate. But I ride down the hill, down Ontario, 
And then I, I loop around False Creek and then you climb the viaduct and cresting the viaduct and looking out over False Creek and just seeing like blue sky and boats and a city rising on a ridge like never fails to amp me up even in weather like this. And so that's that's probably my single favorite spot in the city. You know what's funny? I This harkens back to, I believe it was Jens von Bergman maybe a couple years ago made the case for in transit in the city as his favorite neighborhood. Something that was very similar to that answer, which is which is an interesting one. Uh, now, I can't remember if this question was asked. Um, most of these will not have been asked last time you're on, but favorite bar or restaurant? Um, my wife and I really like Batard on Fraser. It's our, it's our local spot. And like, whereas a few years ago, I could have named like a nice resto, right? <laughs> We're parents now and we had the pandemic and we went to Batard like at least three times a week for wow. years. And like, I know the names of the managers and most of the staff behind the counter. And like, they're a great mixed use bakery bistro and they've got a small grocery. And for the Jewish community listening, they do baking for uh, the Sabbath. And so they've got some really good, both Christian and Jewish baked goods that I understand are in fact like kosher for challah and, and other baked goods like that. And they do like, cake for the Pentecost and and that kind of stuff. So there's like some niche religious baking that's also provided alongside just some really good loaves and and tarts. That's a, that's a great one. Yeah. All right. Downtown penthouse or West side mansion. I think I know the answer to this. <laughs> Can I like multiplex the mansion? <laughs> a lot of people in this city already do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think neither Right. Like I, I like where I live. I like living in a, in a multiplex on Kingsway. I like living in the East side. I feel like Kensington and Riley park are absolutely the up and coming neighborhoods in the city. They've got the most educational and economic diversity of any neighborhoods in the city. They've got lots of legacy and new business frontages. And so like, sorry, but I, I'm not going to pick either of those. Cause I, I got my, my spot in the sun. Nice. First place you bring someone from out of town. Yeah. So I just had one of my best friends come in from Melbourne. He was at my wedding five years ago and I haven't seen him since. And so I actually got to answer this question like three weeks ago. So I took him to Fable Diner. Great spot. Fantastic fare. Boozy shakes. So you guys should check it out. And Broadway Corridor, Broadway Subway is being built. You might think it's closed. It's open. Most of the businesses on the Broadway Corridor are still open. You should frequent them. Then we went down, walked the seawall. And showed him Science World, went down uh, South False Creek, showed him where Sanok's going to get built, and then went to Chewy's down in um, Kits. Chewy's, nice. Got some shots, got some oysters. So did you guys do any drinking? Uh, <laughs> question, uh, question, though, question for a friend. What's a boozy shake? I, this is, uh, so just, I've never like a, had a boozy yeah, shake. Yeah, so like, imagine your favorite milkshake. Okay, chocolate. <laughs> and then imagine pouring a couple of shots into that. Is that, so that's literally what, and do you pour the shot? Like, do no, they no, provide, no, they it's like it, they, they make, make the you. shake. They make them. Yeah, no, so he's like, not bringing a good in one, a So a good one is like, for instance, <laughs> you can get some like, 
Um, you could get like a root beer shake with like butterscotch ripple, right? Wow. Or vanilla with Kahlua, right? Yeah. So nice. That's a. This is all not just really, vodka. Yeah. Okay. This sounds like a great visit to Vancouver. Last question, and this one is for you specifically. You have control over the new "Welcome to Vancouver" sign. What's the tagline? I, I like to think of it as one great city, but I'm <laughs> I'm questioning that's maybe not what your tagline would be. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot. Like I, I've got all the wheels spinning in my head right now. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Vancouver. I I think that me personally, I like the nostalgia, right? Like I like the fact that we're a port city. I like the fact that we're the terminus of the Trans Canada and the rail line, right? I don't think that that's like good branding exercise, <laughs> but like one great port. terminus. But but uh, but talking about it in the context of like the last best West, right? Like Vancouver is a a slice of paradise, right? Like we we are a jewel on the west coast of Canada. And any one of those three things I just said, I'd be happy to have. Slice of paradise. Slice of paradise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kit, thanks again for your time. How can people find out more about what you're doing? And I will say Twitter is a good good place to find you. But uh, yeah, how can people find out more? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kit Sauter, or on Twitter at uh, at Kit Sauter, K-I-T-S-A-U-D-E-R. You can direct message me. You can can, uh, check in, see what kind of trouble I'm causing at City Hall. And um, I'm always open to a conversation about how we can build a better city. Fantastic. Thanks again for taking the time. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Kit Sauter, man who wears many hats and has many opinions. And it was great having him back. That was a charged conversation and uh, one for the books, I would say. Did Kit feel bamboozled by our questions? <laughs> you know I, what? I feel like in thinking about this, the Arbutus and Eighth yeah. was a was a really sticky one. Um, we had talked to Kit about the Broadway plan before. Yeah. Then you bring him back. And then you're like, man, you know everything. Like he's thought of every complicated issue in Vancouver. So then you just start you just throwing stuff him. at him. Yeah. Right. And and there was some there was some in kind of tense moments there, but I think it was a useful conversation. Yeah. One thing that I left thinking was, and I think this was something Kit made a point of saying last time he was on the show, but traditional left and right just don't matter anymore. I, yeah. I really feel like there's a generational shift, at least at the municipal level, right? Where it's really hard. Like after this conversation, it's like, well, you know, there's no like oh, you're, a, you're right wing, you're left wing. Right. It's like, I'm taking stuff from all over. And I think Kit would argue, everything's broken. We need ideas from everywhere to fix it. But it's really interesting to watch younger guys and how their politics just don't align with the way that we've thought for a long time about politics. Kit is always a great guy having on the program. And it is like, you're right. He's got a diverse understanding of of the politics of the city, but also he's, he's kind of all over the spectrum with his thinking. And, uh, and just a super bright guy. So really great having him on the program. Especially as uh, as this election looms in the fall. It's yes. always great having him back. But uh, what else do we have, Adam, for the day? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Never forget that this podcast is actually really about real estate. Yes. Uh, all things real estate related live at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Things like the Livewire. This is our le- weekly mailer where you get the sold plan. Let's, let's just briefly talk about the sold plan. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, this is our guide that is free 
in which you can get your house prepared for listing it on right. the market. And this matters more right now than it has in a long time. You used to be able to put something up, no photos, shack, it would sell way over asking 10 offers. Not the case now. Sure. This is where professionals come to play. Who you hire matters right now in this market. And this is a useful guide. The sold plan is there. We have the catalog, VIP pre-sales, commercial, residential, stats before anyone else. There's basically no reason you don't want to be on the live wire. We also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free at your fingertips. It's available at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com slash PCS. You can sign up today. Best way to monitor a market like this, you're going to see sold prices in real time. And that's what you need right now to understand what's going on in the market. In addition to that, Matt, I do want to say we've got some great guests coming up and uh, we're kind of, we've, we've talked a lot about the city, which I think is super important. And I think people have, will have a lot of takeaways from, from the past few episodes we've had, but We've got some great people from the development community coming up. We've got Mike Bucci coming up, which oh, is yeah, super that's exciting. Fantastic. We've also got speaking of uh, interesting pre-sales. Yeah, we also have um, uh, some investor programs with investors who have over a hundred doors and looking to kind of understand what people that have like you know hundred plus doors are doing in a market like this. Like, where are the strategies? So we've this got is... so many episodes like that coming soon. So if you are one of those people that is kind of standing by right now and monitoring the market and just want to know the best approach, tons of great content coming. That's, yeah, it's exciting to start focusing on opportunities in markets that are soft like today. So stay tuned for that. If you want to talk about that or anything else, you can call me at 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Have a great week and we will be back next week with some more great content. Enjoy the sun. 2,000 Faces for Radio. Subscribe today.